Hello and welcome to the latest session of Let's Get It Straight. I'm Catherine West, Infection Control Consultant, and I'm presenting in this session information on an epidemic that has been present in this country for quite a number of years and is only now getting recognized and setting forth an approach to eliminate this disease in the United States. I'm not talking about COVID-19 or monkeypox. I am talking about syphilis. Syphilis is a disease that has a very, very long history, going back as early to the year 15,000 BC. It has often throughout the beginnings of identification of this illness been thought to be leprosy and was stigmatized from the very beginning. Now, a lot of countries related the incidence of syphilis to their enemies who may have invaded. For example, uh, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom call syphilis the French disease. The French named it Napoleon disease. Russians called it the Polish disease, and the Polish called it the German disease. And this sort of went on and on. The causative organism for syphilis is a bacteria called Treponema pallidum. And there's also been a definition change. STD historically has stood for sexually transmitted disease. The new term you're seeing is STI, sexually transmitted infection. Essentially, the differences between having a disease or just having an infection. An STD begins as a sexually transmitted infection. It can be caused by a bacteria or a virus. Sexually transmitted infections may progress on to become a sexually transmitted disease. When we look at the CDC graphic uh, depicted here, the rates of reported primary and secondary syphilis continue to increase in both men and women. So this is preliminary data from 2001. During two, 2020 and 2021, the primary and secondary syphilis rates around among women increased 36.2%, and the rate among men increased 8.7%. As I mentioned, this is preliminary data, and hopefully we will have our final numbers um, about uh, October of this year, 2022. 
the states reporting the highest number of cases for 2021. Uh, Nevada tops the list, followed by California, Mississippi, Georgia, and Arizona. Who would be listed in a risk group for syphilis? It begins with men who have sex with men, inmates in our correctional facilities, persons with HIV infection, and drug, injection drug partners, sex workers, and added in 2015, senior communities. And I believe this started in the state of Florida, recognition that there was a high incident rate in members living in senior communities. And this one noted was the villages in Florida. This number of cases uh, was quite a, uh, significant and the public health department set teams in to work with members of that community to um, address treatment and diagnosis for syphilis. But I wanna go back to HIV infection. It has always been on the list for persons in a risk group because it was well stated that often people who had HIV infection were co-infected with syphilis. This made this an important part of post-exposure testing of the source patient. But this was missed by many, many people. Signs and symptoms for syphilis generally begin with a lesion, a chancre, in the genital area. So many of us in pre-hospital care would not be aware of the presence of this lesion. However, for persons who have not previously been treated for syphilis, a patient will present with a copper-colored rash on the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet. There are several stages for the illness syphilis. The first or primary stage is where this painless lesion or shaker presents, and it will generally heal after three to six weeks. The secondary phase, as I mentioned just a moment ago, a brownish rash on the palms of the hands and soles of the feet. Patient will also have swollen lymph nodes, fever, patchy hair loss, and extreme fatigue. The next phase is the latent phase, and absolutely no signs or symptoms may be present. And during this time, it is not believed that the patient is communicable. The fourth stage is tertiary. We have issues of muscle control, numbness, their vision is affected, and they present with dementia.
So we want to work to eliminate this disease in the United States. Case rates have been going up for over 12 years in this country and really no attention was given to it until about two years ago. We cannot work to eliminate disease if we don't test for it and then treat people who are identified as being infected and doing uh, follow-up for their sexual partners to determine whether they may have contracted the disease and also need treatment. Contact follow-up, a term you should now be very used to uh, because of COVID-19. We now have expanded routine testing for pregnant women. Pregnant women are tested at their first prenatal visit. But if they're in an area with a high case rate, they will also be tested at the third trimester and at delivery. For sexually active homosexual men or bisexual men, they are to be tested once a year for syphilis. And now we have more testing recommendations that all sexually active gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men should be tested at least once a year, not only for syphilis, but also chlamydia and gonorrhea. Those who have multiple or anonymous partners should be tested more frequently, such as every three to six months. Good news on testing. We now have two rapid tests that are CLIA wavered. And that means that they can be done by other than a certified laboratory. So there are two tests. They are finger stick tests. We have results in 10 to 15 minutes, and the cost for the test is $2.70. Now, if this is positive, then there needs to be more confirmatory testing. But point-of-care testing is now the focus of healthcare today. Let's go back to what the term wavered means. It means that this test can be done in a physician's office, in urgent care, a clinic, or the emergency department. There are also home test kits available. However, they're quite costly. I mean, if you've even looked at a home test kit for other illnesses like HIV, uh, they can be $80 or more. So it's really far less costly to be able to get it done in a doctor's office, urgent care, or a clinic. But if the patient is transported to the emergency department, 
uh, for example, um, there has been an exposure, then we can get the testing done there and have results in 10 to 15 minutes. Now, in talking about post-exposure, in the world of today, risk for syphilis is considered low because you have needle-safe devices, you have sharps containers readily available. And so since 2001, um, with the requirement to be sharp safe, we have seen sharps, contaminated sharps injuries decrease. If an exposure has occurred, the source patient should be tested for syphilis along with being tested for Hep B, Hep C, and HIV. If the source patient tests positive, then a baseline test should be drawn on the exposed employee. If the employee tests negative, post-exposure prophylactic care would be the administration of 2.4 million units of procaine penicillin G. If you happen to be allergic to penicillin, then tetracycline, doxycycline, or azithromycin may be prescribed. I think it's important to note that in the time of antibiotic resistance, that currently no penicillin-resistant strains of syphilis have been reported. Now, I mentioned the increased testing for pregnant women. This has become especially important because of the increase in congenital syphilis. Having babies born who have syphilis that they have contracted from their mothers. In 2019, there were 1,870 cases for 2022, just as of March of 2022, there have been 2,268 babies born with congenital syphilis. Babies born with congenital syphilis, um, can, this can result in a miscarriage, stillbirth, or children who have mental health problems. It's also kind of interesting to note that during the pandemic for COVID-19, all of the sexually transmitted diseases increased, increased. Now, infants born, as I said, to mothers um, in 2021 into 2022, March of 2022, um, the number of cases was 2,268. Look at this graphic. It's quite astounding on the case numbers. And so, there's something being asked of you in EMS because of this.
And that is, since you are a member of the healthcare profession, that we need to get sexual histories. Now, I'm not talking about in-depth sexual histories, but I think if you are transporting a pregnant uh, woman uh, to care, that we do want to ask if that person has had prenatal care. That would be important for the medical facility to have that information. Now, there was a new outbreak reported in Iowa, and they reported um, for 2021 that there were nine cases of congenital syphilis reported in the state. Now, that sounds like a very low number, but here's the point that that matches the total number of cases seen in the previous 12 years. So that is significant. Also, you know, the Ryan White Law is a big law that funds um, treatment and medications for HIV-infected persons of federal funding, but there's nothing, um, no federal funding for syphilis testing to ensure that communities are able to provide this testing. So that's something that hopefully uh, in the not too distant future will be addressed. Now, where does it come from also that syphilis is a disease that we need to receive education and training on as healthcare providers. And it's clearly stated in the compliance direct directive of the Bloodborne Pathogen Regulation from OSHA. You will see that it says that we are to have education and training on the epidemiology case numbers uh, of the diseases, how each is transmitted, and signs and symptoms of bloodborne diseases. Look at the list. Hep B, Hep C, HIV, syphilis, and others if appropriate. There it is. Now, this is the compliance directive, and I've given you the document number. It's CPL 02-02.069, and you can access that at OSHA.gov. Now, the compliance directive really explains what OSHA is looking for and in line with the CDC. So the bloodborne pathogen regulation only talks about HIV and hepatitis B. But when we go to the compliance directive, we see something totally different, that we have to add hepatitis C and syphilis into our training. If we're going to put that into our training, it should also be put into post-exposure source patient testing.
We also need to be trained on what constitutes an exposure and the components and location of your department's exposure control plan. So how does OSHA get into this business? <laughs> how do they get into enforcement of CDC guidelines? And that comes from the OSH Act of 1970 and what's called the General Duty Clause. Now in Section 5 under Duties Part A, it clearly states that employees uh, employers must protect employees from recognized hazards that are causing or likely cause death or serious physical harm. So OSHA has the authority to issue citations and fines even when there is no regulation that has been violated. So this is how the CDC guidelines are being enforced. OSHA is using the general duty clause. And a lot of uh, healthcare disciplines and medical facilities are not aware of this point. So remember that federal law overrides, supersedes department policies. So it's really important that you be on target with what is in the CDC guidelines. This is quality of care for members of your department and liability reduction. If you are following the CDC guidelines, whoever is doing your post-exposure follow-up is following the CDC guidelines, then your department is protected from liability. So yes, source patients should be tested for syphilis in an exposure event. And I hope I've given you enough information to support why that is important. So this is a little bit different presentation. It's uh, not what most people would call a hot topic like COVID-19 and monkeypox, but it is important that we are on target in working to eliminate this disease in the United States. And we all play a role of, in that. And testing plays an important role in that. So that brings us to the end of this Let's Get It Straight presentation on syphilis. If you have any additional questions or need additional references, please feel free to contact me. And I hope you will join me again for another topic on Let's Get It Straight.